So hey guys, welcome back to Out of Bands. My name is Jennifer Winnikers. And my name is Faith Abiel. And today we are joined by a very special dear friend of mine, Eric Schneider. Um, he is a former ex-colleague of mine. I know him also very well on a personal note, and I'm very, very delighted that he will be joining us today to talk about insider risk. Eric, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Yes, well, first, again, thank you, Jennifer and Faith, for inviting me on this um, big supporter and um, very happy to discuss insider risk. Uh, so my name is Eric Schneider. I'm a director with Signpost 6. Signpost 6 is a boutique uh, insider risk consultancy and training firm based in The Hague. Uh, we really focus on uh, the threat from nation states stealing IP and trade secrets. And then the second part that we really focus on is criminal infiltration um, to organizations like the harbors or the police or other organizations. We, we do less on sabotage, less on fraud, which is also covered by insider risk as well. Yeah. And that is actually why we wanted to invite you today, because insider risk is extremely broad. But when most people actually think about insider risk, they usually think of the typical disgruntled employee. Um, maybe, uh, Faith, if you're also okay with that, let's just immediately jump into the topic. Uh, what would you actually describe as insider risk? Like, how would you describe it? Yeah, so insider risk is a very old uh, threat, or insider threats, a very old threat, uh, going back to mythology and religious texts. Uh, there are cases of insider threats mm -hmm. described there. As a discipline, it's relatively new. And uh, of course, the intelligence agency and the military probably had some um, some kind of capability about insider threats. But I think as a discipline, it really started uh, probably around 2011, I believe. Well, Chelsea Manning, uh, the Chelsea mm -hmm. Manning case prompted mm -hmm. the U.S. to issue uh, a number of executive orders, which required anyone working with uh, the U.S. defense or the Pentagon um, uh, they had to uh, establish an insider threat program. And I'm sure for many of these organizations, it was just another hat that someone else was wearing. Mm -hmm. um, but in the US, uh, they have, um, uh, let's say some liberal policies about monitoring people. And so, and especially in the, the federal government in the defense sector, they take a very heavy monitoring approach. So I think that um, when people know about uh, insider threat, and actually I would say that in the US it's really called insider threat. Mm -hmm. um, in Europe, that does not land very well um, because no. they have different perspectives about uh, monitoring here. So insider risk is um, also, that's the term that we use, but some uh, organizations find that offensive. So there are a lot of different ways to, um, to label this. But um, for the most part, insider threats can include um, data theft, including mm -hmm. espionage. It can include uh, sabotage, IP sabotage, but also other sabotage at nuclear plants and oil and gas. It includes fraud, financial fraud, workplace violence. So this is not only uh, shooting active shooters, but um, uh, bullying. Mm -hmm. harassment, wow. uh, insider trading, if, if there's an insider risk component. Um, uh, and pretty much the way we define it, uh, anything that an employee can do that can damage the company um, can be included. But there are problems when you expand it too much because 
uh, there are parts of the organization that are already working on these. Mm -hmm. And um, even though you can make a theoretical argument that uh, because it involves an, a human interacting with their environment, mm -hmm. that really you, you want to maintain that expertise in one central unit, uh, um, that's often not the case. And if it's too broad, then uh, because these different, these different threat types have different profiles. Yeah. Some are low and slow, like espionage. Some yeah. are very quick, like sabotage. So they have different profiles, and it's hard to be a master of all of them. Yeah. And just for, for our viewers, because we have uh, different skill sets, um, could you just explain what sabotage and espionage is to level okay. set? Yeah. So um, first, uh, or espionage. So espionage is a subset of uh, data theft. So mm. normal data theft would be someone leaving their employer and taking a couple of slide decks that they created. Um, espionage is something where a nation state has, uh, a nation state is using their intelligence agency to either manipulate people or um, to really handle a, a someone inside the organization. And that's a much more serious threat because they have, um, a, it's much, much more difficult to, detect a professionally handled spy. Mm -hmm. um, some people would say it's almost impossible, um, but they are really after uh, very important trade secrets mm -hmm. uh, and intellectual property. Sabotage, uh, I think we distinguish between IT sabotage, although with the operations, mm -hmm. uh, with OT and everything, everything is coming down to something with software. Yeah. But sabotage is when someone, um, either deletes, um, deletes a server or deletes a whole uh, data center. It could be uh, manipulating the configuration on um, some manufacturing plants uh, to make that, uh, uh, to make a, a certain function or pressure valve, for example, uh, reduce intelligence, so explodes mm -hmm. essentially. So they're either trying to do physical damage uh, by manipulating mm -hmm. the configuration files or it's sabotage mostly, um, mostly wiping, you know, putting logical bombs and, and wiping uh, data off. Um, now, ransomware is a good example. Is ransomware um, an insider threat? People click on it, it uh, and puts ransomware on. It's an insider that has to click on it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. These are the areas where I think if you go too broad, it's probably not helpful. Yeah, makes sense. But that's then also um, potentially where you get to the question, can insider risk also be unintentional, for example? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, it's one of the. That's not what what we what we focus on. Mm -hmm. but if you look at the vendors that in the space, that is absolutely one of the. And some vendors are just focused on mm -hmm. that uh, inside uh, unintentional insider threat. Um, and again, that's a different profile. That's uh, people under stress, people distracted, um, just making innocent mistakes. And it's probably if you look at frequency, by far, um, unintentional threats are the most frequent events and mm -hmm. maybe not be the most damaging, but in the aggregate, they're significant. Yeah. And how often, I know that you focus on insider threat, but as a whole, if we look at uh, threats within an organization, what's the, what's the percentage that you normally come across for insider threat? Is it rather high? Um, yeah, again, it depends on the, it depends on the industry. So like in financial services, fraud is ever present, even, even internally. 
Um, I would say places like oil and gas, I think sabotage, uh, physical sabotage is probably much higher. Mm-hmm. And then uh, those with, with where IP is very high, highly mm-hmm. valued by other nation states. So if you look at the semiconductor industry, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, high tech, um, data theft is there. So I would, but how, how prevalent it is in these organizations? I think for, for data theft, for what we do, mm-hmm. I think it, for most organizations, okay, they always have a, um, a slide decks going out when people, uh, when people leave, mm-hmm. but they're going to survive that. I don't know if I would spend a lot of money. You can get tools already. You can get the amateurs that are downloading five gigabytes, um, you know, and you can catch them before. But um, for those that are dealing with nation state, it's, it's only a few industries. Um, I would say for those like semiconductor, like pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. like uh, seed research companies, I think they probably have a case, and this is for what they can see, mm-hmm. I'm sure they have a case uh, easily every year. Um, and again, these are the real serious cases because if they lose yeah. their disruptive IP that they're banking their strategy on, it's, um, yeah, it's an existential risk. Yeah. But um, in those industries that are highly targeted, I would say that they would have at least one case a year, mm-hmm. um, but more likely if they had the visibility that uh, they could have, it's probably happening one, you know, uh, more than once a year um, because depending on the nation states, they never just put one spy uh, in, the, in the company. They have more than one because yeah. they, want to, they check the spies to see if the spies are reporting back accurate information. Yeah basically ensuring whether or not they're successful or not. And if one yeah. fails, then another can still pick it up. I always find it interesting that uh, these, these nation states and criminal organizations, they practice risk management. So when an organized crime group uh, infiltrates the police, that's risk management. That's mm-hmm. a risk management action. So I'm always saying like your adversaries are practicing risk management. You might want to take it more seriously as well. Um, <laughs> I mean, but that's exactly what you're doing. Yes. I mean, having redundancy in terms of uh, your collection agents, uh, that's also risk management. So um, some people are using risk management. We wish more would take it seriously. I mean, usually you do see that like the adversaries are way better prepared, way more serious about their approach and all, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a question uh, with regards to how often or how prevalent is the topic of insider risk or insider threat looked into when it comes to smaller organizations? Is it is this something that is just managed by the larger organizations or do you also see a tendency on the smaller organizations? Uh, I think the awareness is definitely much more at the multinational level, okay. partly because A, they have the tools, okay. um, Visibility is one of the biggest issues, and there's a big difference in awareness um, geographically as well. So in the U.S., especially, there's um, it's been a topic for a decade and a requirement uh, for a decade in Europe. I'll say this: you know, Signpost Six has been around for six years. Uh, even when I joined in 2020, you know, we really thought that we were like the first real pure play in in the continental Europe. Um, but it was very tough. Uh, not many companies uh, were you know, calling us or anything like that. Now, I would say in the last six months, mm-hmm. we get more calls about, from, from organizations in Europe asking about it. But you know, at the smaller level, in the small and medium, 
Um, we have given talks to, for example, the um, agricultural tech sector in the Netherlands, um, because when you have um, a cluster of very small companies like we have in Eindhoven, for example, or in Boston, yeah. um, these biotech, uh, the, it's almost like in, in nature what an ecosystem is. Um, they all um, uh, cross-pollinate and they um, really become centers of excellence. And you can, you can name them in the pharmaceuticals. You know, it's Boston, it's uh, some places in Switzerland, some places in mm -hmm. the UK. These are really the centers. But if you start losing the IP from those clusters, it's not just a company that loses. Um, mm -hmm. That cluster will be broken up. And, and at a national or even regional level, the, the competitiveness uh, is damaged. So we talk to small companies. The problem is, is that they really don't have much capacity to start, uh, they, uh, to start a program. We've been doing some thinking about what they can do mm -hmm. in terms of self-assessments. Mm -hmm. But um, even those that want to start, they're in survival mode, whereas I think the large multinationals, um, of course, they're in a very cutthroat market, but they have more money uh, to spend on this. Um, mm -hmm. I do think that um, I would say it's I would say the awareness, even when you talk to CEOs, mm -hmm. some get it, some do not. Um, but the awareness is for most of them the first time they've ever heard of this subject and that they would ever uh, consider it. But mm -hmm. Isn't, isn't it also the case that with smaller companies, you usually have a more implicit trust because everyone knows each other and everyone trusts each other and cannot think of someone being intentionally or unintentionally malicious? Yes, I think that's definitely in play. Not in, not in my team. That would not, that happens in large organizations as well. That this mm -hmm. never happens. Um, and that's where cases, I mean, and if you have internal cases, that's where they're most powerfully used is uh, to... Um, there's a book that was called the 10 worst practices and insider risk. And like, number one is that not on my, not on my team, like yeah. we've been together for 20 years. It doesn't happen. And then you present yeah. a case where this exactly happened, you know, especially in these high tech, because there's a lot of, um, research done with, uh, universities as well. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, that's a risk, but I would also say this is one of the ways that nation states also, um capture ip is that either they buy out uh small uh firms mm -hmm. or they attract people um and say hey we'll fund your startup and then um they'll go and take this technology and fund the startup and you know the nation state doesn't care if really if that startup survives because yeah. they've already collected it and, and brought it back uh you know for repurposing of, for using it for another purpose but um Startups is a space that is not very well controlled, but um, and nation states know that. Uh, so I do think, you know, looking broader, mm -hmm. the nation state will try to hack externally. Um, they will try to, and if they're blocked externally, um, it's not like, oh, that's too bad, we're done. No, yeah. they will track internally. They will try to buy out companies. They will try to um, lure uh, engineers into creating companies. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a really big problem. Um, for organizations of all sizes. Yeah. So, so uh, I'd like to shift to a different question. How can a company protect, defend, and mitigate insider threats? So let's start with protecting. Uh, how how do you how do you avoid it? How do you protect against it? So I'm going to take the case of uh, data theft, uh, mm. and I'll just focus on that. So data theft, it's, it actually starts where, you know, cybersecurity starts is identifying your critical assets um, and really identifying 
those are most critical. Uh, there's mm -hmm. one client, uh, it took 18 months to identify their critical assets because they initially started with 10,000 mm -hmm. um, pieces of IP blocks. Um, they whittled that down to 100, and they, even that 10,000 was the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Eventually they got it down to 126. Um, and then after that, because uh, there are tools that you use to monitor this. So um, DLP is often uh, applied to this. Mm -hmm. Also UEBA, so that's user and entity analytic, um, analytic behavior solutions. One is rule-based, that's uh, the data loss prevention systems. Data loss preventions need very, or DLP systems really need structured processes. Um, and you, you know, people need to do things like one way, um, whereas UEBA is more probabilistic. Um, mm -hmm. But both have problems with, both have problems with uh, uh, too many false positives. Yeah. And uh, if you're not focused or you're, you're covering uh, 10,000, you know, 100,000 people, you have UEBA, uh, you're going, it's, you're never going to extract value. So what we recommend is, you know, really do the work to identify the most dis, uh, disruptive IP, um, limit the channels of access to them, and then put these tools around them. Now that is, um, as you describe. Maybe as, maybe as a stupid question, but how do you actually determine that? Because um, I've been working now, for example, for almost eight years in cybersecurity. And the thing that most of my clients always have an issue with is determining their crown jewels, determining mm -hmm. their most critical assets, uh, because everyone has a different opinion and everyone has um, finds their asset more important than that specific asset, for example. Yeah, well, this, uh, this is always a problem. Um, mm -hmm. And, and even in this this one organization that had finally focused on these 100, yeah. whatever, it's 130, everyone kept going and saying, and saw the success of their program and say, hey, you've got to include my asset in that. Uh, and they were told yeah. no. So um, they they held, like I said, a year and a half of workshops, really willing down. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but it really involved the business. So this is yeah. actually, this, uh, this company, the flag was raised from the business side because uh, in the R one R&D department, mm -hmm. I think 40 people, four zero, 40 people left the organization and joined a startup to, the, to an organization across okay. the street. Um, yeah, yeah, like they really had a, a burning platform uh, when you have that, but they've had more people, like they've had other parts of the organization where uh, 10 people left uh, to the same organization. Um, but the business, you know, raised the flag and said, hey, we need to do something about this. We need to, um, uh, uh, to, to do more protective measures, but I, but I also want to step back about um, to in order to uh, protect against insider threat of all types. Mm -hmm. There are some models out there, and one of them is called the critical pathway to insider risk. Mm -hmm. This was research that was done by Eric Shaw and um, I forget his co-author, but Eric Shaw is a um, uh, behavioral psychiatrist. He's worked with uh, you know the CIA and the FBI, and he, they reviewed 1,500 mm -hmm. uh, cases of real insider threats. And what they created was a conceptual pathway that insiders take. Mm -hmm. And the first is uh, problematic, uh, or not problematic. It's just personal predispositions. Mm -hmm. So these are people who um, yeah can't hold a job or they have some social interaction difficulties it also could be in their network so what do they bring into the organization maybe they have some ties to uh organized crime for example mm -hmm. um the next step on the pathway is some stressors this could be 
uh, financial stress or personal stressors, but something that is adding to the situation. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of cases, if you look at insider threat, the person that eventually committed the act uh, was displaying concerning behaviors in front of everyone, or and even maybe even advertising what they were doing and telling people, I'm going to, you know, when I leave, I'm going to, um, you know, put this malware on all the computers. Um, then often there's an, uh, an inappropriate organizational response. So that comes it's either- not, It's not taken seriously or people just yeah. laugh off or- yeah, so either they, they were too hard and they just mm -hmm. uh, fired the person and the person later did, but did cut off all the access and yeah. then they, you know, um, or they didn't want to deal with the problem. And um, this often happens a lot when there's a problem employee. Uh, most of the time they'll try to get them into another unit. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, taking on a problem like that, uh, especially when you're a middle manager, it's it looks like work. And um even though it's the right thing to do, they they have to get work done. They're under tremendous pressure to yep. you know to meet targets, and so uh, well they, they they don't take it seriously. Uh, and then the final the final part is is when the when the individual after displaying concerning behaviors, uh, they're at what's called the crime script, and the crime script is when they're actually uh, practicing. Um, you know they they're doing trial runs or seeing what the limits are. They're mm -hmm. calling the IT desk to figure out what they can and cannot do. Um, and most tools can catch people at the crime script stage. Mm -hmm. What we've been trying to do uh, is trying to get further left um, and actually prevent that from happening. So um, you can add positive incentives. So mm -hmm. employee assistance programs um, help a lot. Uh, but I was going to say that in the insider risk domain, we're it's so young that mm -hmm. um, we're actually now, there are some challenges to the insider or the critical pathway to insider risk. Uh, there was prior research called Project Slammer, which was looking at espionage cases. And there are, you know, this is, these are well-known kind of models. And I would say MITRE uh, in the US uh, that does yep. a lot of research in the MITRE attack chain or attack matrix, but they're doing a lot of research and they have actual behavioral uh, psychiatrists who are yep. working on this problem. and. What they say is that even though like the critical pathway is a nice conceptual model, it's not mm -hmm. predictive. Um, things like mice, mice is uh, what uh, a lot of people are familiar with when it terms to espionage because they're motivated by money, by ideology, uh, by ego, or, um, but that also isn't the case. I think that, uh, I think in five or 10 years, we're gonna learn a lot more about mm -hmm. what is predictive because the, the data says, and Eric Shaw would say, that even someone displaying concerning behaviors, only one in a thousand actually commit uh, a damaging act. Mm -hmm. So it's really finding that needle in the haystack, um, collecting all the dots because cybersecurity, information security, they have some of the dots about their digital mm -hmm. behavior. Uh, um, HR has some dots about whether they um, weren't promoted, for example, and disgruntled that way. Uh, physical security may have some dots and rarely are they brought together, but the biggest, uh, the biggest um, observer and the best observer are their coworkers on the floor. Mm -hmm. um, they're around them all the time and they have the business context, um, but uh, most people are not uh, willing to call a confidential hotline either because they don't trust the hotline or if they report it to HR and I think mm -hmm. uh, like let's say for sexual harassment, they don't believe that HR will always side with the senior yeah. executive and they don't trust that. And that, that is a big problem for all of these risks. And um, 
yeah, we, we need to we need to do better at that as a society. I think the third reason, sorry, Jennifer, I think the third reason will be that some people don't want to be seen as snitches, so they, they won't mm -hmm. report. Also, yes. Yeah, well, if, and uh, that's absolutely true. And even for managers who have who have concerns, uh, yeah, it looks like they're 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 making it personal. And um, if you can if you can have some kind of tool that helps them say, hey, listen, I have to meet this uh, guideline, and you've checked uh, five out of the seven um, criteria, so I have to report that it it takes. You can blame the tool and not the person, but indeed, um, people don't want to be as snitches. And um, yeah, and if it ever was found out. That uh, that that person, that's that's a very heavy weight, and insider risk is really damaging because um, yeah, you can also get people reporting mm -hmm. intentionally. But once once person has a label that they may be an insider threat, and later exonerated, that stigma never uh, goes away. So that's yeah. why the case management process really has to be secure and anonymized and um, with high sensitivity. Yeah. I mean, based on what I hear right now, it just really evolves right now uh, around trust and around culture within your organization. And if yeah, you have issues with the both of them, then people will be less less inclined to actually do something about it. Yeah. I, yeah, and leadership and leader. Well, I mean, that's where all the trust, uh, you know, stems down from. But leadership, um, people notice what's rewarded and what's mm -hmm. uh, punished. Yeah. Um, great that the leadership supports the program and gives budget for it, but the leaders are are reckless and uh, yeah, you know, harassing people. Um, people can see right through um, right through uh, you know uh, phony phony statements. Like they, we mm -hmm. have all these uh, you know uh, great great program on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. But yeah, people know mm -hmm. what what the reality yeah. is on yeah. the ground. So and yeah. For insider risk, and we talked about how it's going to be framed within the organization. You know, if you say this is really an employee trust program, it's not an employee threat program. It's an insider, or that's not an insider threat mm -hmm. program. It's an employee trust program, and then you monitor them. God, people are not fooled. If you, if you, if this is a trust program, why are you monitoring yeah. us? So you have to be, you have to be um, transparent, or else people will become cynical of the program, and it'll it'll stop pretty quickly. Yeah, makes sense. So, um, are there instances whereby you've you've been able to catch an insider risk or an insider threat? That, you sure, know, while this while is happening, <laughs> absolutely. So that one of yeah. So uh, there are some pretty um, public cases. For example, at Pfizer. Pfizer was implementing, I believe, uh, a DLP system, but it may be UEBA. I, I have to go back to the case, for example. And during the pilot, they discovered like uh, this person was uh, stealing a lot of IP, which they never would have saw before because they were trying to drip it, yeah. you know, drip uh, download it. Um, it was caught right in the pilot, and it was, uh, and they prosecuted the case, and they won. So, you know, what I often say, because in Europe, again, they, they, they they're really averse to monitoring their employees. And I think that, uh, yeah, that's that's fine. Um, what I would say is that- Small, small, they say, nuance, small nuance, it's not an aversion. It's more that it needs to be transparently communicated and it definitely yes. needs to be um, within specific restrictions. 
Absolutely. And I, I was going to say that even with the German, even the, the toughest works councils, yeah. uh, you can do monitoring. It's funny because you talk, if you talk to different uh, people in the organization, that's mm -hmm. one of the things that we do when we interview people. But if you talk to a data privacy officer who's a little lower, they say you can't do that. You cannot monitor. You talk mm -hmm. to um, the general counsel and they'll say, of course, we can do this, uh, but you have to have a case. The works council also realizes the importance that you can't have employees yeah. and I think most most people want their their bad peers caught because then everyone else doesn't get tarnished uh, by yeah. that. But really, what we also say is that when a person commits an insider act, uh, they damage the organization, but they also damage themselves. Yeah. Um, and if you see an employee or coworker struggling, um, yeah, you're doing it for the organization, but you're also doing it for that person. If you if if the goal is to get that person help, yeah. Um, Maybe the, the, the stigma is not there. But the final thing I was going to say about monitoring is that uh, it, you can trust your employees too much. And um, for the organizations that we work with in Europe, uh, when they turn on the tool, they're amazed. They, you probably trust your employees a little less if you knew everything that they were doing with uh, the data probably. that they have access to. Um, doesn't mean that they're malicious, but they're quite surprised. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So uh, we shall be we shall be advancing zero trust within um, organizations, I guess. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> trust nobody. <laughs> yeah, it's sad, but um, it's effective. Yeah. Uh, I guess the question, uh, Jennifer, do you wanna? Yeah, no. So I think uh, we can move on to the next part. Um, so just just kicking the open door open. Um, We've been in the pandemic for the last two years. There's been a huge move from working in the office, working on site to working at home or working at remote locations. Um, what has that done for insider risk, insider threats and trust towards the employees? And if I may add to that, because I know, you know, when when people were working in one place, you'd mm -hmm. have like the DLP systems or, or devices or mitigations in place but then when people are working from anywhere it's a little bit more difficult, difficult. so how has that changed your landscape yeah so it's interesting um when people work remote uh their perception of being monitored they feel that uh, they're a little more anonymous um and they don't feel that they're being monitored and that may probably is the case for many organizations certainly in the beginning so um and does that cause people to become insider, uh, you know, commit damaging insider acts? I don't think it's a, I don't, I don't think it's a uh, factor that someone all of a sudden when they're alone, they, they start becoming malicious. Mm. It, again, usually it's um, a combination of uh, a stress because it was very stressful in the beginning. Yeah. People, you know, everyone was working at home and the kids were going to school at home, added to a lot of stress. Um, and a lot of people lost their jobs. So, uh, I do think, you know, if you look at the reports, but a lot of these reports like Poneman, which I'm always a little skeptical of, the, um, you know, the, the numbers have gone up in the pandemic. There was also a very interesting report that um, it was related to um, uh, trading and finance that the Security and Exchange Commissions in the U.S. actually saw an increase in the whistleblower hotline um, in 2020. Really? And and you know you talked about uh, the culture and like you know would you mm -hmm. would you blow the whistle on your employees and on these trading desks um there's a very tight culture they work hard they play hard together 
And um, now that when they were all at home, they had less tolerance of uh, seeing their, they were more readily um, to raise, uh, to call the whistleblower hotline. Yeah. It wasn't a, it wasn't a high, it wasn't like a hundred percent jump, but it, I thought that was interesting as well. But now, so that was in the beginning, because like I said, they felt like they're mm -hmm. a little less monitored. And I think those people on the edge, let's say at risk, and uh, now you've put them in that stressful, you've added that, that stressful situation. Uh, and now they've learned that they may lose their job or there's another reorg uh, coming on. Um, it could be that they, that uh, it tipped over the edge and that may explain the increase that uh, reports see. Um, what you do notice, for example, is that uh, the number of people who took pictures with their cameras that they catch people taking screenshots increased, I think a hundred percent. So the way they're doing things is a, a little differently, but um, yeah, so I would say it's kind of, to, to some extent, uh, they felt that they could maybe more free to call out mm -hmm. uh, bad behavior by their coworkers. Mm -hmm. At the same time, um, I do think the stress of it in the beginning and the, the feeling that they're a little more anonymized and no one is looking at what they're doing, yeah. um, maybe a small percentage, I don't want to overstate it, um, but I definitely think in some cases it's probably, it probably did push them over the edge. Interesting. I mean, it's allowing more freedom. So, of course, people will be more inclined to do things that they normally wouldn't. I think it's interesting now that the companies are putting much more monitoring equipment um, uh, for remote workers. I wonder if that's changed because now they're being notified that they're, they are being monitored more. And it'll be interesting to see the um, if there are changes. There should be changes. There should be periods when insider risk goes down, at least for remote workers. And, you know, but... The, we don't have enough data it's yeah. you know this was a problem in cybersecurity. now that they have to report the uh, breaches we have a little better data mm -hmm. but insider risk is uh handled very discreetly inside usually they um get the person out of the organization and no one ever hears of it i'm, I'm interested in how insider risk investigations happen um do you have because i i can imagine that maybe you have to have the presence of HR, obviously, yep. um, legal. Are there other people that are involved in that whole investigation other than yeah, the so, investigator themselves? Uh, the way most organizations do it, they usually have, because um, yeah, you have a, a number of triggers that can come in. It could come in from a manager mm -hmm. or uh, a worker calling the confidential hotline. It could come from a technical tool if you have some technical tools that come in place. And so, Usually there's some triage that happens, like a technical triage, let's just say it starts there. Um, then this, uh, this alert always has to have more context. And uh, that's one of the things about insider is you can go to the business and say, hey, this, this, this activity looks suspicious, but maybe they're, the business says, well, this, uh, this is explainable. You have to have that context. And I think that's what makes it difficult. You know, a lot of organizations try to staple um, this onto their SOC. Mm -hmm. And uh, the SOC people often don't really have the background. As you know, SOC people are, the good ones are very expensive, but a lot of SOCs are staffed by juniors and the junior doesn't understand the business. And um, yeah. an insider risk analyst really needs to understand uh, the business context and has to be able to talk to business leader and have credibility with the business leader. But normally it'll come into one central point. It could be, for example, the ethics committee, which mm -hmm. are handling other cases. Um, and then usually depending on the case, uh, uh, the person who is in charge or who has authority for this will set up a specific team to investigate. And they pick people from, let's say, that business unit. 
-hmm. legal needs to be involved, um, HR needs to be involved, uh, and then IT, um, IT security and maybe physical security. But uh, it's usually never one to, uh, some organizations want to have uh, an investigative group um, mm -hmm. kind of stable, but I think that you, because you need that context, mm -hmm. other people are involved. And it could be that the investigator reaches out and, um, and gets the information they need from these subject matter experts. But um, some organizations, like I said, they either have a fraud department, which they try to expand, um, but it has to come in someplace. And mm -hmm. for, for organizations that are not that big or they're not, um, you know, this is the first time they're really conducting events, they don't have a fraud department. They really have to be careful because we talked about the sensitivity and, um, you know, you, you have to keep everything and make sure the people who have access to this are vetted um, and have a lot of procedures about ensuring the confidentiality of it. I mean, speaking on the uh, on the confidentiality, I can imagine that um, even especially if you as an organization are not 100% sure that the insider is an actual insider and actually performing malicious activities. Um, are you aware, for example, any legislation around handling this specifically, either in Europe or, for example, in the US? I mean, outside of the existing, short answer is no. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, outside of the existing privacy laws. Yeah. Um, but you have to get it in Europe. You have to you have to get it by the Works Council if yeah. you're going to do monitoring. And um, yeah, th what they often look for is uh, transparency. They want to make sure that the labor lawyers are involved and privacy lawyers are involved, and that um, yeah, they they often don't want uh, tools making decisions. So they want a human looking at this case, and they want transparency. Um, but if you can meet those. Um, then you can do then you can do limited monitoring, but it's such a different, you know, in the US, uh, you can start collecting data and then uh, you go to court, but like in Europe, you have to state your reason before you start to collect. It's a, it's a completely different mindset. Yeah. So I can imagine the, the challenge, the challenges encountered with companies that are multinational where they have, you know, offices in, in the US and they have mm -hmm. European offices, so they can't really apply the same rules. Um, in everywhere, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So you have to take a jigsaw puzzle approach because you're, you're dealing with so many regulatory regimes. You'll, for multinationals, you'll never have a uniform no. um, program and that's costly to have a jigsaw approach, but you have to do it. Yeah. yeah. Would you recommend organizations to have some sort of a playbook ready to actually be able to deal with, with uh, insider risk when, whenever it occurs? Yes. So I think there needs to be what, like a run book of sorts um, because A, you want to be transparent. Um, and in Europe, you, you want to, when you talk to the works council, so like, this is how we make decisions. Um, it's one of the problems when you, when you start throwing machine learning at it because you don't really know what the model is and how, mm -hmm. how it's making decisions. So you want to be, but you also want to ensure consistency. So a case in uh, one, one part of the organization is treated as fairly as the other part of the organization. Um, and yeah, people need tools. Uh, this is not going to be their full-time job uh, yeah. doing insider, you know, and you can investigate these cases. And if you look at the, um, uh, some of these spy cases, you can analyze these cases for a year. And I don't know if you'd make a better decision. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what you need is like, what is the criteria in order to start a case? So it's not just a bunch of points. Um, 
You also have to know, like, let's say the case is, uh, let's say a false positive, or there's still some doubts, like how long do you keep that case? Uh, because like, do you want to open it back up again in another six months? Or have you thrown it away? Because um, if a person has repeated patterns over time, that also builds the, builds the case against them. Um, how long do you retain the records? There needs to be, there's actually a lot that goes on to, to case investigations. Um, but you'd be surprised at how, how many times it's just, um, you know, not finger in the air quite, but, you know, based on experience, but humans are incredibly inconsistent. Mm. Um, you probably have heard of the, the, the judges in, in Israel for parole hearings. Um, yeah, faith before is- Before lunch like and after familiar. lunch. Yes, before lunch, depending on how lean they would, you know, whether you got parole really, uh, a big factor is how long has, has it been since that judge ate a, a meal? Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Faith, I thought you wanted to say something. No. Okay. No, I, I, I think I read that in, uh, um, I think, Thinking First or Slow or something of a sort. I think that's why it was. Uh... And, and Daniel Kahneman's new book, Noise, which came out last year, it's all about uh, inconsistent. Um, not only do different people, like if you're talking about giving a loan and mm -hmm. giving the same set of facts, different people make that uh, different choices, but the yeah. same person We'll look, we'll make the same choice presented with the exact same information on a different day. Mm. So humans are inconsistent if they're not uh, guided by some tools. Yeah, I really wanted to read that book. I saw, I saw it came out. <laughs> now you reminded me I had to write it down. <laughs> yeah. Um, also looking a little bit at the time, um, maybe it's good to go to the next topic. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, so could you maybe share a couple of um, insider threat indicators, like how would you actually recognize something is happening? And we've talked already a bit about humans being inconsistent, but considering the fact that, that this is a specific working field and this is a specific specialism within the industry, there must be some sort of common factors that you can recognize. Yeah, so there are, there are a number of that, and I encourage uh, listeners that they they want a good overview. There's a, a report from NATO um, Center mm -hmm. of Excellence called the Insider Threat Study, came out in 2016, and they described for each of these um, uh, types of insider threats mm -hmm. what indicators. And they have system, they have network indicators, they have system indicators, they have behavioral indicators, they have background indicators. So um, you know, we always say that you have to put all the dots together. So it really yeah. starts um, uh, on the background checks. Um, again, what kind of networks did they have? What is their history? A mm -hmm. lot of times it's amazing. Uh, a person has committed fraud in a prior organization and yet they're still led into a new organization. But yeah, if you, if you had checked that they, they had a conviction for fraud, um, that, you know, that happens quite a lot. Um, uh, for data theft, like I said, there are a lot of network tools that are getting better. They still have a long way to go. And, mm -hmm. and I mentioned earlier that uh, MITRE is working on really predictive tools. So it's always easy to tell a story looking backwards. Um, but I know MITRE is doing a lot of good work on what exactly tools that you can use. So for example, uh, so what are some of the indicators? Uh, someone um, renaming files uh, and encrypting it mm -hmm. and then uploading it. And a lot of these insider risk tools, they sequence these events. So someone has taken, downloaded something, they've changed the name, they Mm -hmm. They put it in a zip file, they've encrypted it and renamed it, and then that they re-uploaded to someplace else. Yeah. That is, uh, yeah, if you can put that sequence together, um, that's warrant, that warrants a conversation yeah. to say what was going on there. 
Why are you and, doing this? Yeah. So, and I think that, like I said, the tools nowadays can do that. I think uh, 10 years ago, they couldn't string these events. So you can see maybe mm -hmm. someone, if you check the log files, uh, yeah, you really need an expert to say, wow, that's strange. Like, why, why did they rename these files or mm -hmm. this particular file? Uh, but those are the type of indicators that tools can detect. Yeah. Um, and again, if, if people are advertising, it's surprising how often people are advertising what they're going to do. And um, I think as I think most organizations, we talked about uh, taking, um, uh, taking confidential um, reporting very seriously. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we need to do that. Uh, but that, that NATO uh, insider threat study, it really breaks down for each of these. And I think their, their, uh, um, their tables are based on Carnegie Mellon. So Carnegie Mellon in the United States yeah. and their CERT uh, has a whole unit. They've been, they've been um, investigating insider threats for 20 years um, and they have an analytics program. But, um, but yeah, they, and they're still evolving that. Sounds cool. Sounds interesting. I think that we would be, it would be good for us to include that in our comments. I've written them down. Yeah. Even the critical pathway to insider risk. Yeah. <laughs> was the first time Very I've heard of it. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Um, I think I'm relatively through to my questions. Faith, do you still have anything that you want to clarify or? I think I think the um the last question that I'd like to ask is what type of background or mm, how do yeah. people get into this um inside a risk field as in helping organizations not not being the insider themselves if you look at uh, yeah <laughs> just clarifying so for the audience uh well we we, we run a uh, job board and so we get to see what companies are hiring for that um I, th I would say most people in this domain come from an intelligence or law enforcement background. Mm -hmm. um, there are pluses and minuses to that. So they, they have an investigative background, but again, you're really um, are trying to catch the bad people. And you're, you're more on the uh, detect and respond than you are on the preventative. Yeah. I do think this, there's a lot of opportunity for um, behavioral psychiatrists or psychologists, mm -hmm. uh, HR people, you know, this is traditionally be sold to um, the CISO mm -hmm. because uh, they're, they're already working on external threats. So you're going to wear this new hat and mm -hmm. the CISOs are trying to solve this through tools because that's, they probably, you know, that's what um, they're used to. Yeah. They rise through the ranks on the command line and that's what they believe in tools. But fundamentally insider risk is about a human being mm -hmm. interacting with their environment. Mm -hmm. And we don't have enough um, people who understand the psychology of individuals and organizational psychology. So there's a great need to get more of these people involved in the field, um, HR people. Um, I think there's a, I think there's a great opportunity for for people with that background uh, who want to get involved. It doesn't have to be in law enforcement, and like I said, there are plus there's a place for an investigative background, but um, it's uh, it's not the whole domain. Wow, that's good. So if you're a uh, if you're into psychology, then um, you got a place in cybersecurity. And, uh, and, you, risk. <laughs> and you can really shape this field. Um, you can really make a name for yourself with some good research. Um, yeah, I think there's great opportunities. Great, thank you, thank you. Uh, Jennifer, I guess let's wrap up. 
Yeah, I think I'm good for now. Um, first of all, Eric, thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know uh, that you're extremely busy and we really, really appreciate it. Um, any last final words that you want to share with us? Yes, I would just say that um, insider risk is, um, depending on your industry, it, it's definitely something that you should look at. Uh, and I do think it's solvable, um, uh, you know, because we, we come up against that. So. Uh, do take this risk seriously. I think um, many many organizations have invested a lot on their external perimeter, and um, the attackers know this, and they realize yeah. that uh, a, a few thousand uh, euros, and you're behind all the controls. Mm -hmm. It's really cost efficient. Um, but I really appreciate the opportunity um, to present this topic because it doesn't get enough airtime, and I think you've. You know, I, I really appreciate that. And I think you're doing a service to your to your loyal fans uh, that you've done so because uh, um, they're going to hear more about it in the future. So mm -hmm. Faith and Jennifer, thank you. Okay. Thanks for and joining us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, uh, again, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Um, for our viewers, for our listeners, thank you again also for joining us. If you want to participate in the conversations like Eric did today, uh, please reach out to us. Uh, same if you have a suggestion for a, to a new topic. And other than that, thank you guys. See you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs> Ciao.